they were getting better, right? They, they, they were having more awareness about themselves and about how they were moving through their life circumstances. Um, a lot of them were reducing their reactivity. So instead of going, you know, zero to a hundred, there was a 10 second pause where they could decide to do something differently. Even a three second pause where they could decide to react differently and, and use some of the um, talk-based therapy skills that they had been learning throughout their lives or, or in the programs that they were in. The Neurofeed Podcast. How is clinical neurofeedback transforming lives? We talk with therapists, researchers, and home users. From the intersection of neuroscience and therapy, these interviews tell stories of discovery, empowerment, and learning to thrive. Our guest today is Anna Morell, with a master's degree in clinical art therapy and introduced to neurofeedback in 2010, Anna specializes in work with children, adolescents, and caregivers. Having early on recognized the healing qualities of the arts, from expressing thoughts and feeling states to the regulating and grounding characteristics in the act of creation, Anna uses a person-centered, trauma-informed approach that draws on neurofeedback, art therapy, sensory modulation, and play therapy all as a means to increase emotional stability, self-exploration, and life engagement, especially for those impacted by developmental disabilities and trauma. She offers neurofeedback mentoring and workshops on working with children and adolescents. So thanks for joining us, Anna. I'm really excited about talking with you today about your experience. Um, maybe you could just start out by describing when uh, when new clients come in, how, how do you talk about neurofeedback? How do you describe it to someone who hasn't had any experience before? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, it depends on the age range of the client. Uh, first of all, so if I'm working with a, a, a tiny human, a, a young one, I'm going to be talking about it in language and in terms that they understand, but I'm really not going to be talking so much as I am going to be showing what it is, um, whether it's me hooking myself up and showing the games or playing around using using the, the system as a way to buy in and, and engage through the explanation. Um for like little, little guys. And then as the age range gets older, then I'll start explaining a little bit more, but I'm always explaining it back to like linking it back to a reason why they are coming in, right? Working with kids and adolescents, the parents always have a reason for them to be coming in. Um, but the kids also have something that's underlying that, that they want help with and, and working on. Um, so I'll always explain the neurofeedback with that hook back in some to help um both with like informed consent so they know why they're doing this and what they're doing um but also just to kind of increase that motivation for showing up and and for being present and letting me put goop in their hair <laughs> that's great i wonder can you talk a little bit about what um 
about your process to become a neurofeedback clinician? Like what, um, you know, why did you, why did you take this, begin this crazy journey? Yeah. My personal process yeah, <laughs> journey as it were. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I was working in a nonprofit organization that had uh, many different kind of factions, foster care, residential, um, specialized school. And um, one of the elders in, in the uh, agency, um, at that point, he was a consultant. Um, he'd done neurofeedback for many years um, in his private practice and was upgrading his system. So he had an old system to donate to the agency. And he said, I will donate you guys the system, but you have to get somebody trained. And the agency did, um, like I, I had to write a little blurb about why I wanted to do this and um, why I wanted to learn neurofeedback. And out of, I don't know how many other clinicians were really that interested in doing it, but I won. I got to go to the training. Um, I do feel like I won a lot by having that gifted to me. Um, and I went into a four-day training in Boston and um, started climbing up <laughs> Mount Neurofeedback. Um, but I was also, because I was in that agency with that um, consultant, his name is uh, Dr. Barry Sparks, and I may as well name him. Um, and he, he I, I was trauma with the words here. I was extremely fortunate that my circumstances led me to a work in this organization and be have a really great mentoring relationship with him. He introduced me to Seaburn and Fisher. Um, and after I went to my four day training, I was, you know, practice, practicing neurofeedback with myself and with my colleagues. And I was also um, observing him starting to train some of the kids in the the school program. And then I would apply the sensors and, and he would run the system. And so kind of like a training wheels approach, he slowly let me start running the whole show. And then one day he was like, oh, I'm going on vacation. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> that means I have to do it all myself. Um, but I did and it was great. And then um, that was back in 2000. And I think, yeah, 2010. Um, and I don't think I have practiced as a clinician anywhere without neurofeedback since then. Yeah. And can you talk about why that is like, what, what happened with neurofeedback? Why, what, what made you just want to do it? Was it the effect on you or was it the seeing what it was doing with your clients? Uh, all of the above, right? This is definitely a, a case of all of the above where the effect like my own self-training had was I was regulated with my sleep. I wasn't, um, I have a pretty high startle response and that went down, um, which was great. Um, and my like interpersonal relationships and, and moving about my work field just became so much easier. I wasn't getting burned out the way my colleagues were who weren't doing neurofeedback. Um, and then working with the kiddos, um, who I affectionately call them kiddos, um, they were getting better. 
right? They, they, they were having more awareness about themselves and about how they were moving through their life circumstances. Um, a lot of them were reducing their reactivity. So instead of going, you know, zero to a hundred, there was a 10 second pause where they could decide to do something differently. Even a three second pause where they could decide to react differently and, and use some of the um, talk-based therapy skills that they had been learning throughout their lives or, or in the programs that they were in. Um, and um, it just changes the dynamic of, of the, the person. It helps them create a better vision of their own self, right? Like they're getting a reflection of what's going on for them and it helps them learn to be in the present moment safely, right? And as the clinician working with the client using, using the EEG as a tool, you're bearing witness to them in the present moment as well. And, and that's a really vulnerable state for someone to be in. And I think in some ways, because there's technology involved, I'm using air quotes, but because there's technology involved, it's like, it has this like buffer feeling like they don't have, it's not that vulnerable. Um, but it really does allow for the clinician to see the person wholly and, and truly in the chair with you. And then you can be reflecting back what you're seeing. Um, and you can really change and tailor treatment from there. I was actually just in a consultation where someone was talking about, um, you know, one thing that they've been noticing about this one particular person was that if they move away, like while the person is training, if they kind of move to the other side of the room for whatever reason, um, they start to struggle in terms of staying present. And then when the person moves back to be in a closer vicinity, having that external regulation of a person, then that person is able to home enough and engage and reflect. And that's a beautiful piece of information to have for a kid moving forward that they might need an additional external regulation right now. And we have it like it's recorded data, you know, like it's there. <laughs> so the school system is like, no, we don't want to, no, <laughs> we have, we have this information and it, and we've tested it a couple of times and, and it's always proven to have the same outcome. So. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Anna, you've, um, we've talked about this before, but when you added neurofeedback, how has it changed your, your practice as a clinician? I mean, you were talking a little bit about in the room, but sort of maybe bigger picture. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's changed it significantly. <laughs> um, uh, for me as a clinician, it, it helped me, A, recognize that I only want to be working within an organization or, or, or my own self or whatever in, a, in the capacity to be able to utilize neurofeedback. Um, so that really helped me navigate my early career, you know, when I was still working in um, community mental health um, in the nonprofit, se nonprofit sector. Um, And 
I'm going back. I'm going back through what you asked me, Leanne, to make sure that I hit the points. The when when you're listening to the other person's nervous system, when you can hear both what their current circumstance, thoughts, feelings, behaviors are, and you can hear how their nervous system is responding to those, that's a completely different conversation. And that, to me, I can't practice without that. <laughs> I just won't. I just won't do it. Um, and I think being able to offer that level of presence and awareness that neurofeedback can for for a client, regardless of what they're coming in the room for or coming to the office for. Um, I'm one for words here, Leanne. I'm sorry. That's okay. You had said before that it meant you were discharging clients for a good reason more often. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because they're regulated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're regulated, right? Like they're um, they're able to learn the skills, hone the skills, and own the skills, right? So, so those things that in you know however many years of talk psychotherapy I was doing before, like it sometimes it felt like things weren't sticking. It wasn't sticking because I wasn't addressing the issue at the brain, right? We, I was addressing maybe the relational issue and, and maybe some kind of intellectual curiosity issues, but I wasn't addressing dysregulation in, in the nervous system and, and the brain and the body. And now being able to use neurofeedback from, from that lens, now those other skills stick, right? And I know that this person, like they're going out into the world, they're practicing it, and then they're feeling pretty darn good that they were able to use the skills. And they're like, whoa, this is amazing. I now X, Y, Z. Um, and when I go back and I look back at treatment plans, it's like, yeah, well, check, check, check. <laughs> You've achieved all of those. Um, that's exactly how I want my clients to be moving through the world, right? Is in improvement. Yeah. It's not common in industries to say you want to work yourself out of a job, but that's exactly what we hope to do is to work ourselves out of a job and means we have to find more clients. But um, for, I, we work with very similar populations with like developmental yeah. trauma. They can be clients for forever, for a very long time. And to have a tool that allows you them enough improvement where they can no longer need you, even if it's just for a period of time is a huge yeah. difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I think about it as working myself out of a job. Cause I, I used to do, I was like, I'm going to be the neurofeedback theory and I'm just going to be like sprinkling neurofeedback in all the lands that I go. And, um, uh, there's just a, I feel like everyone on the planet could benefit from just a, like a little, a little flavor of what regulation is you know uh, and and what it feels like even if you're you're a pretty regulated person right like when i did my intro course um i was yeah i thought i was pretty regulated <laughs> but i've always struggled with sleep my whole life and then 
um, you know, the, by the second day of training, once I had made adjustments to my protocol and I like literally after six minutes of training, felt like my brain had just had like a little massage and it felt so good, but I was so clear and I could hear everything that was being taught the rest of the day. And this was like day three where you're talking about like sodium ion channel. <laughs> like, you know, this is the other thing where it's hard to stay focused. Um, and I was, I was able, I was able to be present. And, and then that night I slept like, and I woke up and I was like, is this what people mean by a good night's sleep? Like, I, I don't think I've ever really had one in my life. And that is an incredible gift. Absolutely. And I love where you're saying that everybody, no matter who you are, especially in this world that we live in, to be given the gift of regulation and whatever symptom that, that might look like for the individual is, is a gift um, yeah. that we can all use. Um, yeah. And that's part of why you and I do the neurofeedback introductory courses so that we can get neurofeedback to more people. Absolutely. The more clinicians train, the more people who can do neurofeedback, the more it, you can give that gift to more people. Absolutely. Yeah. There's not enough, there's not enough electrodes in the world. <laughs> not yet. There will be one day. I wonder if. Uh, it, it raises a question for me about people who, because both of y'all have, have actually been doing neurofeedback for a number of years and and started doing the introductory course, um, and you also mentor folks. And I wonder what are the what are the things that uh, the beginning clinicians really have trouble with? Like, is there some parts of it that feel very intuitive for you about the approach to to brain training? And are there some things that just, you know, that, that, that were more challenging to understand and that you see, um, you know, people who are, who are just learning this modality have trouble with? The one piece that really fits nicely for most folks who are already in the trauma field is the arousal model that we teach. Um, you know, there's details, you know, this back pain or this headache or these little things that they sort of have to incorporate those little details. But the overarching theory that we really rest on, the arousal model fits very closely with um, polyvagal theory and a lot of other things that trauma therapists are already familiar with. I find more often than not that's a beautiful, easy fit for people. Um, the pieces that are, that are more challenging are technology um, and, and they get the hands on, you know, putting on the sensors and things, but working the amplifier and the computer and those things, that's usually the biggest, the biggest hurdle. Um, which is why uh, Anna and I being sort of experienced, but not too far along is really helpful because we remember what it's like to have to learn all those little skills. Um, and we're of the generation that gets technology um, as best as one can when there's all this. Um, so we're really... Um, adept at helping people figure out how to make the technology work for them. But, and I know you'll, you'll add to that. I'm sure. Um, yeah, I, I think maybe like fast forward three months post, you know, introductory course and, um, someone's kind of like, they've been, they have a system at home and they've been practicing, they've been doing neurofeedback for themselves and, and with family and friends. Um, just to try to get comfortable with it. And then 
they have to work with a real person. Not that their like, family or friends are not real, but working with like a real client, like stepping that threshold. Um, I find that like helping to boost some of that confidence uh, is, you know, you're, you're, you're only going to get better every time you do it, right? You're only going to be getting better every time you learn by an error. Right. And sometimes that error can be pressing F7 instead of control F7, <laughs> getting that weird orange line on the board. Um, and I, Leanne, I think you're absolutely right that the, the arousal model lends itself so beautifully to trauma informed clinicians um, and, and even occupational therapists, right? Like thinking about that sensory modulation theories, um, you know, where, where we're really working to, I'm going to use Kathy Malchiotti's uh, circle of capacity model where neurofeedback is really helping to expand the circle of capacity. And when uh, that piece for clinicians seems to click and resonate, um, but there can be sometimes like a, I really don't want to do the wrong thing. I really don't want to do the wrong thing. <laughs> oh, I really don't want to do the wrong thing. Oh no, I did the wrong thing. Um, and the wrong thing could be pressing F5 at the wrong time, <laughs> which isn't really that big of a deal uh, when you're uh, running a system, running a, a session. So um, helping people feel confident that they they do know what they're doing and that when they trust their clinical chops that they're already coming to neurofeedback practice with, that helps to ease in as well any of the insecurities that someone might have about this new fandangled technology. When uh, we're getting prepared to hire a new staff, my business coach asked, you know, what qualities do you think you're looking for? Um, you know, sort of what are unique to having a neurofeedback with counseling practice? And the two things that really stood out to me were, were tenacity and courage. And tenacity is kind of a tenacity for learning, a, a sort of a passion for learning, because neurofeedback will be a forever journey of learning. Um, what we know today about the brain will be different tomorrow and every day for the rest of our lives, because that's how neuroscience is at this point. Um, and I don't know if we'll ever get to a point where that stops, but that tenacity and passion for learning sort of is the, the foundation that I think good neurofeedback clinicians have. And then the other piece is that confidence or that courage to say, I'm going to try something and I'm, I'm not going to go nuts. I'm not going to go off the reservation, but I'm going to try something and we'll see it's a conversation with the brain and I'm having the courage to start the conversation and then to follow it and to reach out to mentors and be on that journey with the person. Uh, yeah. And those, those are two very important things. And you know, depending on someone's life and circumstances, those things may not be easy to find. Um, but I do find that uh, sometimes the neurofeedback on yourself helps with that second courage confidence piece. So sometimes if you just have the first, we can help you get to the second. Absolutely. I As you were talking about that, I was thinking about, you know, if I didn't have that experience of second day, making an adjustment to my own training and having it be so beautiful <laughs> for my brain and my nervous system. You know, I, I 
joke about like oh, I drank the Kool Aid that day, but I, I did. That's what really hooked me in. Like, wow, six minutes affected my nervous system in such a positive and profound way that I've never been able to tap before. That's that has driven my curiosity ever since. Like whatever day in twenty one twenty ten was like. So, you know, when someone has that state shift or that arousal shift through their own neurofeedback training experience, um, that's a person that I think is going to be sticking it out. And at the very least, maybe not at the, the very most, they now have their own regulated nervous system. That really makes you do for sure. And it makes you just want to like sprinkle it around in the universe, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> don't get what I have. <laughs> but but what's good for me is going to be different for you because we all have different nerve endings, you know? <laughs> One thing that I think is interesting about your story, Anna, is how much you uh have worked you know you were working in the area of massachusetts where there is just a real um hotbed of like just brilliant uh development around neurofeedback and then you moved to Asheville, north carolina which is another hotbed of like great stuff i wonder if you could talk a little bit uh more in general about you sort of mentoring in the and the community and what that means for your process because um, neurofeedback does seem like a very challenging thing to learn. So what role has community played in, in your process? Yeah, I don't, um, I, I'm, I am tenacious though, so I probably would have stuck it out, but I don't know if I would have do, um, been swimming so deeply in this sea if I didn't have the support of, of mentors around me. Um, you know, like I, I talked about my, my early process, you know, I spent about three months observing and slowly taking over clients, right? That, that was a luxurious transition <laughs> that I was able to have. Um, and with that, and during that time, I was able to build my confidence around things. We also had like a super old system that was like a two computer thing with an ethernet cord and they had to communicate to each other. And so there was always these like funny uh, technology glitches that, so I was just constantly like solving on the fly about things. So now it's like, there's like a little hiccup. It's like, oh, it's not a big deal. I don't have to yeah, do all this stuff. But um, being in the Western Massachusetts area where there is absolutely a hotbed, right? Like that's where Seaburn Fisher hails from. And um, I was so incredibly lucky to be, you know, swaddled up by her, um, and and the community of of other providers in the area that she had also swaddled up, right? And so we were all uh, in this group, and we would meet monthly. Um, we still actually there's still a group that meets monthly over Zoom now that I moved far away, um, but and then transitioning down to. Asheville, North Carolina, in part was a, a personal choice because uh, I, I wanted to be in bigger mountains. Uh, that makes me a happy human. Um, but 
also there's there is a community down here and there's a different community down here um dr ed hamlin is like an encyclopedia (laughs) his brain is like an encyclopedia um and he's ever it's like an ai encyclopedia actually because he's constantly (laughs) updating his software (laughs) and and reading new new things um I feel like I'm I'm diverged from your question here, Lars, because I'm I'm thinking about going for a hike now. But um, <laughs> uh, you know, we, I'll see people in the in the waiting room or you know, other pre- providers, practitioners, friends, and colleagues, and and we'll like we'll run a quick thing by each other, right? If, if we're stuck on something, it, it you know it, uh, an email, a phone call, a a lunch, a coffee, um, just to kind of work through things so that you don't, so that you're not getting stuck in how you're thinking about things. And, and, um, even when I was in Massachusetts, I was also with, um, Ellen Cho Smith and Mark Capen, this incredible community. We shared office spaces and, um, it was the same thing there, right? You walk down the hallway and be like, Ellen, I have a question. <laughs> or she'd be like, Anna, I have a question. And, um, just having that camaraderie I know is not always the case I often joke like well that doesn't happen in Nebraska you know but um maybe it does I hope hopefully it will start um but there's always a resource of someone in the field who and I think that's actually one of the beautiful things about the eager community specifically is the willingness and open openness to be sharing expertise, right? There, there's a lot of opportunities for mentoring, um, you know, with with Seabrain Online, uh, with a lot of the other providers um, that use Eager specifically, but also who might be working in your niche of population and setting. Um, I think we can't do this alone, right? And if I can add to it, so coming from someone who did not have quite the community, I had, I had um, my office partner, but she was actually in the middle of raising two small kids, so I didn't see her all that often. Um, but you'd have to wait weeks to get a question answered. Um, you know, it, it felt sort of like you were on an island, um, and the learning. You know, I see this weird thing on the screen. I'm having a technical issue. How do I? Who can I help? You can't just pull the next person in from the office and go, hey what is this on the screen what am i doing and even just to hear all the different ideas i'm trying this with this person it's not making a difference what else can i try all those 10 minute conversations and then longer really help you grow um because they they're so relevant to what you're doing um and what really helped for me was when i went to the the eager conference the um neurofeedback interchange conference i believe it's the official name um and met other pra- practitioners. Um, we reconnected when, you know, I hadn't seen you since my initial training. And um, I connected with people that I could then email and say, hey, here's a picture of something strange. What am I looking at? Um, yeah. And there were big trainings and smaller trainings. And, um, I think to have that in- in-house for you probably accelerated your learning in ways that, you know, you wouldn't even know because you didn't, didn't, know, weren- didn't know what it was like and my 
good grace of having that is not lost on me, right? <laughs> it is um, not lost on me at all. And I think it's because I had that is what, you know, it, in my clinical practice, I have like a couple of open groups that meet. They meet every other week, but I have at least one group every week that are like, that can be drop in, right? So if there's always an availability for someone to be able to drop in and have a question asked, it might not be, you know, <laughs> down the hall, but at least you don't have to wait weeks and weeks because I've, that, that doesn't feel tenable, right? Like that feels like, <laughs> if you're seeing someone two times a week, like I need an answer, you know, like I need to know what I'm looking at here. Or, you know, do I pause? Do I, which should I shift some protocols? You know, what, what's the procedure? How do I move forward? Um, and, and so I, that my experience of being swaddled so lovingly, um, is what really drives me to be providing as like the, as the, I can't find the words today, uh, comprehensive mentoring as I can, right? Because that there's people in Idaho, you know, <laughs> I feel so far away from where I am, but there are. And that was and then, how we designed our course was to not have it be four days and then you're dropped off the lot on the base camp and told, okay, good luck, get to Everest. Exactly, exactly, yeah. We're with them every step and then as long as they choose to stay with us or within the eager family, they get that mentoring that, you know, I wished I could have had when I left my introductory course. Yeah, yeah. And I, again, so lucky that I had built in. It was like in-house, you know. And let me say that I- to work off of. <laughs> well, <laughs> I still had to do my extra 40 hours a week for my salary job, but it's okay. It's all right. I was so eager and willing to learn that uh, it was it was amazing. Um, but yeah, you know, the, that model of mentoring is, you know, we've included that in our online practicum where people get matched up as best. I try to, I do the matching and I try to do it as best I can by like, time zone because sometimes you know that's a factor <laughs> yeah someone that can accommodate your your place in the world um but also by population and maybe interest um and level of, of expertise in whatever population and field you're in um and in the practicum people they meet with their in, their mentor individually they meet in a small group setting so you're also like getting to meet individual people even though you're in an online setting and then you meet afterwards as well for for one one included time in the practicum which i think really helps to solidify the the benefit of mentoring whether it's with the person you were matched with or not um but knowing that there's you're not alone and that there is someone that you can throw a line to and you have each other's emails and you have each other's contact info um like i'm every once in a while i check in with with people from previous cohorts and just to see how they're doing um and it's usually all good stuff so <laughs> the other day i was thinking about just to switch tracks a little bit um i was thinking about how uh among eager clinicians there seems to be very much this approach that's about 
uh, sort of empowering the individual nervous system, as opposed to, I think it, for a lot of neurofeedback systems, it's really about sort of training to the bell curve. What's the, what's the, what does a normal brain look like? You know, S. Loretta and so on. Um, and it seems to me very different in the way that eager clinicians approach it. This idea of like, your brain has certain ways of, of working and we're going to, we're going to work to improve the functionality of your particular brain, not try to get it to resemble some ideal kind of thing. I wonder if you could talk about what that, what that looks like in, in, in practice, like for you, um, or your thoughts about like, if, if people are, you know, approaching this and just wondering what, what systems should I get involved with? Why would you say that somebody should consider this idea that, you know, every brain is unique as opposed to there is a normal kind of distribution that, you know, that we're trying to get people to, to be more normal. I think I'm going to actually quote Leanne here and that, um, you know, I, um, I'm a unique human <laughs> and I'm going to, well, I'm ad living here, Leanne, but I like my uniqueness. Um, some of it doesn't always work for me. <laughs> uh, like when I don't sleep very well or when I can get highly competitive. Um, but some of it does, and I don't want to lose the stuff that does over the stuff that isn't. Um, and I, I don't necessarily want to be trained towards the norm personally. Um, but I would like to be helping my nervous system. And I, I, this is how I think about all my clients as well. I'd like to be thinking about my nervous system, their nervous systems, helping them get to what feels the best and most efficient for them. Right. So you know, an efficiency for a three-year-old, if uh, if I've got like one of my little, little tiny humans is a lot different than efficiency for a 17-year-old, 18, 70-year-old, right? Um, and of course, when you're training towards norms, everything is, is age-normed, right? So, it, but, but I don't know if I would want to, I don't know if I would want to do that for someone. I certainly don't want to do it for myself. I like I like my uniqueness. <laughs> it's helpful but, to know what, what norms are, you know, to know, to know scientifically that this amount of this slow wave is typical at this age or, you know, excessive at this age, because knowing what the norm is and then knowing someone has anxiety or problems and looking at that area that has something different from the norm and going, hmm, given their problem, given this, if we work on this, we might get some improvement. You know, knowing what the norm is, great, but making the brain, forcing the brain to go to the norm. Um, you know, the, the quote that Anna was looking for is that the average IQ is 100. And if you asked me, uh, would I like to be trained to be that exact norm? I would not agree to that. I, I don't want to be normed. Um, I would rather keep what makes me unique. But do I, would I like some negative symptoms to go away? Yes. And sometimes knowing what the norms are can help you figure out where that can be best done. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there, there's, I, I always think of there's, there's 
fast wave and slow wave and waking delta and you know all all these other terms that we we throw around and in, in the neurofeedback world. But at the end of the day, it's like how does this what's how is this person moving through their life, right? Like, are are they are they really struggling to keep up with being what's with what's being thrown at them? And if that's the case, that's one of the symptoms. And they have excess slow wave stuff. Well, gee, we have something that we can be targeting, not necessarily to bring them down to the norm, but something that's going to help get them to have, be at a level of more efficiency, right? Not actually ties back to one of Lars's questions. What's the hard, what are hard for new people? And I think the art and the science and navigating how the two don't always, sometimes they align and sometimes they don't can be really challenging in the beginning because we listen to the person first and foremost, the, the brain, the data is nice. It's helpful, but Anna and I both feel very strongly that it's the conversation with the person and their brain. So new clinicians, new neurofeedback clinicians will say, but the numbers aren't changing. I'll say, we'll talk to your client. Is it, are there, is their anxiety changing? Is their depression changing? Is their fixation changing? Whatever it was you were hoping to help with. And if it is, then the numbers aren't as important because you only see the numbers when the sensors are all in their head. You don't see the numbers. You don't see whatever when they walk out of your office. And that's what you're actually trying to impact. And I actually, I find that that can be really challenging to kind of be like, wait, but we, the numbers are important, not as important as the person and what's changing for them. Yeah, absolutely. I always, um, I tend to use the review screen a lot at the end of, of sessions, kind of regardless of, of age, and I'll pick something out, you know, about what they, you know, oh, look, your brain learned how to decrease the slow wave or uh, like, whoosh, look at that. You brought that way down. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. And I'm like, yeah, but how do you feel? You know, like that doesn't really matter to me if you're still feeling, you know, tense, distressed, you know, all of the above. But if you were able to bring your fast wave activity amplitude down and now you're feeling relaxed, but like present and capable, then like those are those are wins, right? Like that's, that's the data backing up the person's experience. But I always ask what the experience is because we're humans. We're not robots. Um, and because, uh, um, of the work that I do, I have to ask a little bit about does the software matter? Does what software you use make any difference at all? Uh, could you, you know, you, regardless of how somebody starts, why, why would you, uh, why would you suggest, for example, that somebody maybe should try eager or would you suggest it? I'm personally, I would suggest using eager. I believe it's the most capable software. I think you, you, there's a lot of, you know, there's, there seems to be a lot of features that I'm always learning about all the time. <laughs> Um, you can do coherence training. You can do some. You can do all of the, the this myriad of training. You can do z-score training. You can you can train towards the norm using your system, right? And so, if you're going to be making a per, you know a big ticket item purchase like an neurofeedback system is, which it is, regardless of what company you're going with, have one that does it all, right? Like, mm. and the to me. 
again, and and this kind of goes back to whatever question it was a while ago about what um, new providers, eager allows you to make changes and eager the software itself has been designed and created along the way with clinician input. So what what does what do we as clinicians who are in the field doing the work with clients, what do we want to see change? They get the feedback and they make those changes or additions. And and I don't know of of other systems that do that so um openly and and readily. That's great. That's great. Is there are there is there a play? Would is there anything else you want people to know about the work that you do or what you've been working on? Um, you know, it's a should they be following you on Twitter? <laughs> uh, what am I working on? Oof. You got your um, class. You got your book chapter. I know. I know. Yeah. I um. I have. I have an online uh, neurofeedback with with children and adolescents course called Regulating the Developing Brain. Little play on Dan Siegel, Regulating the Developing Mind. Um, And, you know, I I ran that course last uh, winter into spring. Um, And I'm, you know, hopefully going to be running it again soon and making changes and adjustments as I'm always researching and, and learning more things. Um, I am in the process, early process, of, of writing a book chapter for an upcoming handbook, clinical handbook of childhood trauma and dissociation um, that'll be coming out. I don't even know when it'll actually get published, but um, I'm writing the, the neurofeedback chapter in their intervention section. So um, I've been, it's actually been really amazing to be writing, uh, putting all of the things that we say <laughs> into hard copy um, and sorting through and organizing and digging through all the, the research um, and also sadly finding such little research in with the specific 12 and under age range population in trauma, right? Childhood trauma, there's seven randomized controlled studies that look at children in trauma um, and only two that I could see that included only that younger age range, everyone else included adolescents. Um, So this is an area where research is vastly needed and our clinical stories and our clinical outcomes from interviewing people, I've been kind of talking with people all over the world who've been doing neurofeedback with kids, and the outcomes are incomparable, right? We, we have kids who are who did not have a very pleasant direct trajectory in life, um, who are now doing well, right? And, and exceeding all expectations that, that they have for themselves, that social workers have for themselves, um, and so that's been really that's been the coolest part for me, putting this whole thing together, and kind of trying to weave all of these stories together. Anna also does uh, mentoring groups and individual mentoring um, 
and she's phenomenal. I'm in one of her groups and excellent. Thanks, Lamb. <laughs> we got a good group though, too. So <laughs> all the groups are good. No. Um, yeah, and then um, and and I I teach the in person training too with uh, Dr. Hamlin and Dr. Ammerman. Um, so we've we're kind of dividing and and conquering that that course um, and you know ever ever evolving it to still meet BCIA standards and you know the the blueprint knowledge that's that's required for learning neurofeedback but um, tweaking and honing how we're talking about um, you know we've we've added in talking about the disordered arousal profile and um, some of those other things that. Leanne and I have started doing in the um, online practicum as well, but getting to do that in the in-person course. So I think people walk away from that feeling overwhelmed <laughs> as they do, uh, but also knowing that there's supports. 